0: The product is essentially an acceleration product. You, you know when it's working and when it's not. Like you can see around you. You know, you get in an Uber, you know if the driver is good or not. It's the same thing with this. We're basically like half car enthusiasts and half people who never want to drive.
1: What's up everyone? This is Car Dealership Guy. You're listening to the Car Dealership Guy podcast, which is my effort to give you access to the most unbiased and transparent insights into the car market. Let's get into today's episode. All right, this was a fascinating episode. I think autonomous vehicles in general and the whole idea seems like a very kind of fringe concept to many people. I think John Hayes is an interesting person because he's taken this idea and he's bringing it to reality. I think what they're doing is just a very different approach to autonomous vehicles. He really dives deep into that. He dives into the business model, to the economics, how much money they've raised, how they're different than Tesla. Please don't forget to let me know your feedback. Uh, Just write, tweet at me. I'm really curious to know what you're thinking, so I hope you enjoyed the episode. Let's get into it. All views of Car Dealership Guy and guests on this podcast are solely their opinions. None of the views expressed should be treated as financial advice. This podcast is for informational purposes only. John Hayes, welcome to the pod. Good to be here. I've been really looking forward to this episode. I'm super curious to know about Ghost and just autonomy. We haven't had a CDG podcast episode on this topic, uh, but there's a lot of you know things moving and shaking right now. I think before we get started on, you know, Ghost and, you know, uh, what what it does, can you just give us your brief background? How did you enter this hardware or software space? Uh, What is your background? How did you get to this point?
0: So my background is building software. I'm coming out of Canada. Right after college, I moved to Silicon Valley, joined a startup. And I went through a virtual world startup, through a talent search startup, and worked at Yahoo. And then the first big break was a company called Pure Storage, which was data storage um, on on flash memory. And we started that in 2009, we went public in 2015, which was about as fast as you could. Uh, The economy was really great back then. And then around 2017, uh, you know, I was getting that itch to start something new and I started Ghost. And so, you know, each time I'm changing domains, The the interesting thing about Ghost is it doesn't really have anything to do with data storage. What it does have to do with is, you know, the observation we made back in Peer Storage was that consumer technology was leading into the data center. Like consumer tech, that's where all the innovation occurs. That's where all the volume is. Wait,
1: Wait, what do you mean by that? What do you mean it's leading to the data center?
0: Okay. So, you know, what we saw back in 2009 was you had just the MacBook Air had come out. Like the most expensive laptop had flash. It had an SSD in it. You also saw the $200 laptops also had SSDs in it. And so you see the top and the bottom of the consumer market. And so what we predicted was no one would have any hard drives in the consumer market anymore. And what that moves is tons and tons, like billions of dollars of R&D to keep making this product better. And our assumption was that over time, that solid-state storage in SSDs would get better faster than hard drives. And that basically came true. And if you look around your life, you don't have any hard drives anymore. Um, and so, so our assumption was that the, that R&D path would mean that the Flash memory would take over absolutely everywhere. And so what we did was we took those consumer products that no one said, everyone said wouldn't work, wouldn't be reliable enough, and built some smart software around it and put it in a data center where it runs 24-7 on, under the most durable applications.
1: So essentially, you, know, you, you, brought, you brought storage to the cloud? Well, storage
0: was in the cloud, but it was on a, a much cheaper medium, much more reliable, well-proven medium.
1: Got it. And you, did you take Pure Storage Public as CEO?
0: No, I was not CEO. So this is the first CEO job for me. Um, I was a technical leader in that company. And so now I'm stepping up to CEO for the first time in this
1: company. So what was that like? I mean, you mentioned you mentioned 2017. I saw I noticed you were um working at a, a VC fund in 2017 for a short stint. Was that the point where you had, you know, ghost, you know, you had this idea and then you left, or how did that work out?
0: So I was there as an entrepreneur in residence. And so what that means, it's kind of like entrepreneur welfare, where they, they pay you a salary, they give you entrepreneur benefits. Entrepreneur welfare. <laughs> And and you're supposed to come up with a billion-dollar company idea over like sometimes over a year, sometimes over two years, and so I was there for the purpose of starting a new company, and I met my co-founder Volkmar, there. Uh, there were other companies started out there at the same time, and so for those few months, yeah, I was I was just you know going in every day researching. What's new in technology? Because there has to be something new. Like there has to be a reason to start a company, something that's changed. Uh-huh. And then what, what market could be applied to? And the transportation automotive market is just one of the biggest markets in the world. And so if you can find technology to apply to that, that's going to be a great business if you can execute it.
1: So explain to me simply, what is Ghost? What is the, the thesis behind the company?
0: The thesis is that when... I live in Mountain View, California, so I see all the robo taxi companies. Waymo's based there, and the thesis is is that when you look at how people actually use transportation, you know, you add in all of taxis, all rideshare, all of public transportation, all of bicycling, and it adds up to two percent of trips. And so, what I saw was that no one's going after the ninety eight percent of trips, which is people driving their own cars, <laughs> and so, and. The barriers to that were, one, the the hardware had to get much, much cheaper. And so when you see a robo-taxi, at the time, it was probably like a couple hundred thousand dollars of hardware. And they think they're going to get that to maybe tens of thousands. But that was never going to be the right scale to put on a consumer product. And so we started with a baseline that, where we want to assume that, let's assume you put like a thousand dollars like of cameras and computers. Like really, really pare it down to something that you could put on every single car. And then build autonomy software to make that work. And so that was that was the that was the naive thesis back in 2017.
1: Yeah. And I want to hear how it evolved. But you're basically saying, let me retrofit someone's car so that it can become some form of self-driving, basically.
0: That's how we started out. So we were thinking it's like, oh my God, the, the car companies will be very difficult to sell to. Uh, it was a very long path. We would go we direct done, to consumer. Yeah, we would go direct to consumer. And starting about 2021 we decided to reorient the company and say, no, no, we're going to sell to auto manufacturers because they started wanting to have that conversation. So when we started in 2017, a a typical response would be, oh, the the auto companies will build what you're building. Like, because, you know, 2017, Super Cruise had come out, you know, Tesla Autopilot was out. It seemed like they could evolve their products. But now, starting about 2021 or 2022, you're seeing a lot of turmoil in those projects inside the auto companies. And so now they're changing their tune where now they're actually looking to buy something rather than try and build it internally.
1: And why is that? Is it just, you know, they can't get their shit together from a tech perspective? Is it just too hard? Well, what What is it?
0: I think that there's, there's two things. There's a big thing. So one is that auto companies have not made software a first-class engineering discipline. And so... The the hierarchy is built on mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, and when you look at the senior leadership who came up through engineering, who didn't come up through marketing, it's almost always those two paths. And software engineering is just a completely different discipline. So they're trying to build these organizations, and they have to be run differently. The the other thing is that there's no evolutionary path between something that unreliably flashes a light at you and something that will actually drive a car 100% of the time. There's just orders of magnitude more complexity. And so I think that they've discovered that, that they can't evolve from features like individual safety features and maybe some lane centering into something that's full autonomy and that they're built in a completely different way.
1: So you think you can get the car that's in my garage right now to actually be full self driving by just retrofitting some equipment on it?
0: Well, we think that the next car you buy will have the right equipment to be autonomous. And so we've targeted. But it won't
1: necessarily, but it won't necessarily be autonomous.
0: Um, that's up to the auto companies, but what we target is the exact same computers that they're already building into cars. So these are, you see it in the entertainment system, the exact same cameras that they're already building into cars. Like it seems like every car now has between like four and nine cameras and the radars and tying that together into an autonomous system. And, and you especially see this with electric vehicles where they're just changing the entire architecture to make it centered around a computer instead of being centered around the motor.
1: Can you explain to me the different levels of autonomy? I think before we even talk about, you know, the, the capabilities of Ghost, I'm trying, I want to I level set okay. and understand what exactly you're striving for here.
0: The levels of autonomy are usually thought of as the number levels, like one, two, three, four, five. Five is unattainable; it's some future that may never exist. One is like cruise control that we've had since the seventies. Okay, so most of the products you see on the market are level two, meaning that they do some assistance, mm-hmm. uh, they do some lane keeping, even things like uh, blind spot information systems count as level two. Like everything, it's just. Yeah, I'm laughing pocket. because
1: my 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 wife hates it. Like the the car will suddenly stop her. And she'll just freak out because yeah. she's like doing something. It's complete surprises are out of nowhere.
0: Yeah. And I, you probably find when you rent a car and it like makes a noise at you and you're kind of confused as to what that noise is. That's a level two feature. Um, and so, and so then in between you have level three, which is this strange zone where you've seen Mercedes implement a level three where they do a traffic jam assist. So if you're going slow, like under 35 miles an hour in just the right conditions, you can look away from the road and the car will just coast along. And BMW is talking about bringing up the same feature, but they're going to go up to 40 miles an hour. And so often it's just very limited conditions. And so the thing that everyone really wants is level four, meaning that you can set a destination or be driving along, and you don't have to look at anything. Uh, The car will maybe try and attract your attention, but if you don't give it to the car, then it will pull over to the side of the road. Like if it thinks it can't continue, it has enough self-diagnostic that you don't have to be watching it to make sure it's not gonna do something crazy. And so you've seen this appear in two places. So one is in robotaxis. So companies like Weimong Cruise are the most prominent. Uh, you're seeing it in trucking. And, and more recently, you're seeing level four in China. So China is actually on the leading edge of taking level four technology and putting it into consumer cars. And you can go there and like try a car. And that was a big shock to the auto industry starting earlier this year. What's Tesla? Tesla would themselves, they would say that they're a level two in that you have to watch it to make sure that it doesn't do something crazy. It works much of the time, but not all the time. Clearly their engineering goal is to get to a level four where you don't have to watch it. but they had to do probably years of improvement to get to that point.
1: Yeah. But how, how is it, how is it possible that it's level two? If, you know, there's, you see people just, you know, going to Tesla, obviously they say you have to, you know, hold the wheel or whatever for a liability, but wh- what is it really like practically speaking? I think practically speaking, it's level two. And,
0: and wow. that's because if you just let it do what it wants and you don't pay attention, mm-hmm. you will have a, almost everyone who's driven Tesla has found a moment where it scared them. And I think, you know, I live in California. I'm surrounded by, by Tesla's and Tesla drivers. Everyone has sort of learned where it works and they turn it on and off depending on where it's going to work. And, and I think that that's consistent with, you know, Tesla taking a very breadth first approach. They want to do a little driving in a lot of places. Uh, What we, what we're focused on is doing extremely good driving in fewer places. What are those places? Mainly freeways. Like freeways, expressways, highly structured environments where you don't have a lot of pedestrians and bicyclists and other uh, road users like that.
1: Mm-hmm. You mentioned Waymo, you know, Cruise comes to mind. What What are the key differences here? I mean, you hear a ton about Waymo and Cruise that you're always in the press, you know. Like w- w- so what are the key differences here between Ghost and what Waymo and Cruise are doing?
0: So they have two major differences in their technology. One is that they use specialized sensors called LIDARs, which are, were originally used for engineering and site surveying. So you can measure exact distances with pretty good density around you. And so it's used for making a 3D map of an environment. The downside is they have to be outside the vehicle because it's, it's laser, so it goes along the line of light. And they're quite expensive and difficult to maintain. The second thing is that they use technology called HD maps where they program in all of the detailed rules of how to drive on a particular street into a database, and they use that database. And so mostly what they're looking for at their sensors is the other road users like cars and, and you know pedestrians and all the, all the mobile things that they can incorporate into their HD map. And so that's why you see Waymo launching in particular cities, because they spend uh, up to a year before that doing a detailed survey of the city to build up this database of how the roads are connected and what all the rules are. We're taking an approach that's more similar to what Tesla is. So one, we don't use any specialized sensors. So our thesis is that um, ordinary cameras, again, there's an amazing amount of R&D to improve cameras, plus AI means that you don't need specialized sensors. The second is we drive in what you call first-person mode where instead of trying to anchor against a map by saying, where am I in the world? What are the rules at this point? We just interpret the scene visually as it comes in. Um, And then the the maps we use are ordinary navigation maps. So there isn't detailed information about exactly where you should drive on the road. Instead, we orient to what you can see. Um, And so the advantage is that you make a system that works in a lot more places. So anything that looks like a highway, it'll work in, you don't need There's to right. have pre-surveyed that. And, but the main thing is like, it's much cheaper, much lower maintenance.
1: Do you have an active prototype right now?
0: Yeah. Yeah. We've been driving, uh, we're up to 5,000 miles a month in, uh, in California now in Detroit. And we just crossed the border into Canada,
1: uh, it's just, amazing. uh,
0: just this week. So that's, uh, that's exciting for me as a Canadian. I put a toe
1: back in Canada. Wow. What was that like for you? Like were you were you the the driver's seat, passenger seat? What was that like?
0: I I wasn't I was here in Toronto. So the our team was at the border. Oh so, got they, it. so they crossed the border. They have some pictures under the Canadian flag. So we're gonna be letting people know that's happened. And maybe letting the police know because they didn't quite answer their phone. So um, <laughs> but we stayed under the radar enough, even though it's a it's a totally like wrapped car, so it looks unusual, but um but yeah, it worked perfectly. Nadian highways are pretty similar to American highways.
1: That's incredible. What what was that feeling? I'm curious, like the first time you you stepped into that car and you started driving. Were you were you like a little scared? <laughs> You're like, I hope I don't fuck this up. It's almost like Jeff Bezos going on the the Blue Origin rocket. It's like, you know, I hope I hope this thing doesn't explode when I'm in it.
0: Yeah, it's probably not that dangerous. I mean The first time we started driving late last year, like August. And the first time you go on the road, it does not work well. Like the the steering is wrong. the, the, The speed is wrong. And it just takes like months of just sitting there and tuning it and fixing problems over and over. But that was the culmination of four and a half years of development and finally bringing it all together for the first time was just amazing for the entire team. It's like, we, we just had, we were just set up on the highway and just having people take runs. It's like, Hey, this, this really works end to end and it's built on, and, the, and there's nothing magic in
1: the system. So on that note, you mentioned four and a half years. What, one of the ways I like to come up with questions for, um, my podcast is I just like to put myself in, in, you know, a founders or a CEOs or an executive shoes. And I do like this, you know, real timeline. And one of the things that I thought of when I was, I put myself in your shoes, I said, 2017 we're now in 2023, like they say, you know, being an entrepreneur is like, you know, eating glass or whatever. I mean, your feedback loop is like inexistent, you know, like you're not yet selling to, to market or, you know, maybe you're working on deals, but you're not like in market yet. And you're talking about six years of development, building, trying to prove something. How, like how, you know, and especially given you said you were from enterprise before that, I mean, enterprise, you build a product, let's go, let's get the first sale. It's like right away. Let's get that. Let's get that dopamine hit. Let's bring some sales at the door. So, how? What is it like running a company where, for you know, five six years, it's like you know, I wouldn't call it maybe an inexistent feedback loop, but it's a very, it's tough, you know. And especially a CEO motivating the team. What what is that like for you?
0: It's it's even more interesting with the investors who would of course love to see a feedback loop because they're putting a lot of money into this year after year. Uh, one of our investors, Keith Roy. You know his theory. I just is, tweeted is, it out. Is,
1: of it. I just tweeted out. Yeah,
0: it. is is sort of the the anti lean startup, which is like, no, what you should do is it's like making a movie. You should make the movie and then sell tickets to the movie. Like it, it's your vision to make that work. And I think that we're in a space where it's a bit like the last company, where the product itself is is obvious in a sense. In that, if you sit in a car and the car drives, it's the right product, and you know that it's a product that a lot of people want. Yeah, and that's where this company is very different from previous companies. Where, you know, I I'm not going to buy a storage system for myself. You, you go home for Christmas, and what do you do? It's like I build data center equipment. This is like obvious. And w- when you sit there, and we, you know, when we bring in partners from auto companies and sure ones, and they sit in the car, they're like, "Oh yeah, this is working. Like <laughs> this, this is obviously working." And so, so a lot of it is one i would say the harder part over that time was there was a lot of false starts it probably took us uh we we had a long r&d period where we had to solve some fundamental problems like okay you have a camera you want to measure distance what are your ways and we went through about four completely unique ways to do that you want to figure out the road geometry went through three completely unique ways to do that uh we've rewritten uh how we do planning like, how, how do you decide where to drive? That's been totally rewritten three times. I think it's on the fourth time. How do you control the car? That's been rewritten three times. And I think that to keep the team motivated, first, our team is mainly engineers. And so the cost and improvement is its solving own problems. reward. Yeah. yeah, solving problems and having the sort of the right sense of when, when should you start over and build something completely new? and we've done that multiple times over the years to get it right because otherwise you, you get stuck and you make a lot of compromises um but this is definitely the, the longest development cycle i've ever done in in my life because we're at six years we probably have like at least another year of pretty hard development we're starting to get some feedback from the auto companies now some of it is determining their psychology but you have to create internal posts but a lot of it is like making sure that everyone in the company goes in the car, like at least once a month and they can see that it's getting better and get that sort of, it's it, the product is essentially an acceleration product. You you know, when it's working, and when it's not like you can see around you, you know, you get in an Uber, you know, if the driver is good or not. It's the same thing with this. And that's also been essential for helping people figure out what they should do next because they know something is wrong how can I contribute? If I'm working on controls, I can make the controls better. I can make the visualization better. And, and so it's very personal. Almost everyone who works at the company wants this product. We're, we're basically like half car enthusiasts and half people who never want to drive. And so, (laughs) and so everyone wants it and they know what they want for themselves. And so as long as they see that continuing to improve, that's where the
1: motivation comes from. What, what's it like to actually retrofit a car? Is it like, hey, come <laughs> to my garage, 30 minutes, let me slap some hardware on this thing, or what is that like?
0: Well, so when we build cars, it probably it it takes like a couple of weeks because the guys like literally take apart the entire car. We're doing interfacing with the controls of the car. We have to add computers into the car. We wire up cameras all around. Some some stuff is glued on, some stuff had like all the doors come off. Um and we install radars. It's, it's a process that takes weeks right now. And that's one of the things that convinced us that, um, you know, this really does have to be manufactured in. This is complicated enough that doing after the fact would probably be, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to do a retrofit. And, the, and retrofitting isn't a great market. People just don't spend that much on cars after they buy them for things that aren't maintenance.
1: Yeah, and I think also the other thing to consider with consumers is, you know, if I retrofit my car, did I avoid the warranty? Yeah, no one
0: knows. So, it's it's sort of uncharted territory and the auto companies yeah. will threaten that you have.
1: Yeah, which is where I think it makes sense to partner with uh, auto manufacturers, almost be like an authorized whatever, so that, you know, you can just cross that hurdle. Tell me more about, uh, tell me more about the economics of this business, right? I think I have a couple of questions. Starting very high level, how much funding have you raised? So we raised um, just
0: over two hundred million in funding, about two hundred thirty million, um, and and so all of that has been equity funding, uh, mostly uh, entirely from financial
1: investors. Who was who was your first investor?
0: So first investor was Mike Spitzer out of Sutter Hill. Um, he was also the first investor in Pure Storage back in the day. So er. he, you know had some confidence that we'd make something work. <laughs>
1: Had some confidence that you know what you're doing. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully, okay. And so, what's what's the money being put towards? Is it like development? You know, employees? Anything else?
0: It's almost it's almost all R and D. And you know, what's nice about making inexpensive hardware is the the cars themselves aren't that expensive. The the building that expensive. So almost all of it is R and D, and it's probably like two-thirds software, one-third hardware R&D. Got it. And so this is the, the previous company, uh, Pure Storage, it was like a lot of raised capital went to building an enterprise sales force because that was it. Well, we have 12 customers in the world. So it's almost all R&D and we're selling into the engineering departments of those
1: companies. And what's your cost of, you know, a piece of hardware to equip one car? How much does that cost?
0: So the, the final cost to build should be under $1,500. And, uh, yes, for for the, for the, for the company. Okay. (laughs) And
1: then, and then for the consumer or the manufacturer, how do you think about that?
0: So the, the way we think about it is a bit different. One, we're not actually interested in making money off of hardware. Uh, we, you know, you put a computer in a car and it's going to be the same computer. Like, Uh and I think that cars would benefit from standardizing that. The camera we buy from a camera maker. We don't make cameras. Someone else makes it. Uh And so. Our our goal is to get the car companies to just put a computer in every single car. And then our business model is based on licensing the software at the point of activation. And whether people pay in terms of an upfront cost or with a kind of monthly cost is neutral to us uh, because we don't have expense until they actually start using software.
1: So you're basically betting, or your goal, what you're optimizing for is to make to for the manufacturers to put the necessary equipment as a just natural course of progression in these cars. And then you piggyback off that, that hardware that's already pre-installed and you sell them the software, which is like light years ahead because you've been working on it for so long and you've come such a long way.
0: Yeah. And this is a very different business model for the auto manufacturers. who are very used to saying, everything I sell has a piece of hardware and, and the cost associated with it. And then they have to inventory manage all of that. And we're saying, no, speculatively, put a computer in there that you'll probably use anyways, because you you still have your your screens that you have to run. You still have level two features. Like it's not going to go completely unused, but you're speculatively putting this in there, knowing that a pretty good percentage of customers will upgrade and use all the hardware.
1: What are you building specifically on the software side that you think is defensible? Like if I'm I, and I, I agree with you that the manufacturers, they don't have that like software engineering muscle or that's not at least our core competency. But w- what what is it about Go specifically that will get you to a point where, you know, you are the software they need. They have to come to you as opposed to, you know, a competitor or building it themselves, whatever it may be.
0: So software is always an accumulating advantage, meaning that hardware you redesign the whole thing every few years. And you see this with cars, where they come out with an all-new car where they've redesigned everything. But software, you manage over very, very long periods of time. And so you have accumulating advantage, and you have in that you just add to it and add to it. And you replace the hardware underneath, and that's okay. And that's how all the software you use has been developed since the beginning of time. So if you think about it, it's like you replace your iPhone every couple of years, but all the software remains the same. And it just follows, and, and you substitute that out. Now, the other thing about the economics of a, a software company is the more users you have, the more RD you have. So you have this positive feedback loop. And I believe that the auto companies themselves, none, none of them um, have the scale necessary to, to, to do real worldwide development. And it will always be an external vendor that can have enough distribution through multiple car companies in order to feed the R&D to to actually develop it. So some of it is, you know, we're very good at running software projects, but there's a reason why in a lot of domains of software, you tend to have winner-take-all solutions because once you get that flywheel going, whoever has the most users has the biggest R&D budget, has the most efficient sales, and that's especially true in AI products where you have the most data flow as well. But then in general, like, let's talk about competitors. So the, the main competitor, the, the market leader right now is Mobileye. Mobileye has been oriented around selling a chip. And that's, that's been their whole business. And if you look at their business model is how many chips can I sell? And they haven't yet transitioned to being able to sell software in order to, and just letting the chip be a commodity. So we would rather let, let Qualcomm, let NVIDIA, you know, they, they have... Other markets for their chips—that's driving their R and D faster, and yeah. they're going to make their chip better faster than Mobileye will make it faster, because they just have much, much larger distribution in hundreds of millions of units. And so, what we're betting on is that platform will get better, and then our software, because that's our sole focus, will get better as well.
1: Who do you think or from from the car manufacturers? Who do you think is the likely winner here, as this as the scales as you know we think. I don't know, five years down the road, what whatever. Who is the winner here? What do you mean by winner? I think who gets the most who gets the most adoption and who benefits the most from this from the car manufacturers?
0: It it's always it's a very fragmented business to begin. Like there is there any car manufacturer with more than five percent of any market? And I don't I I don't know exactly why that is, but I think what I'm seeing is the The American car manufacturers are probably the most ahead. And then the Europeans, um, the, the Koreans are, you know, they're, they're behind, but they're aggressively catching up. And you're talking about
1: autonomy. Are you talking about strictly autonomy?
0: Autonomy, just where they are autonomy. And, and the Japanese car manufacturers are kind of nowhere. Um, I, the, the stalking horse in everyone's mind is what are the Chinese manufacturers going to do? Since they're going to be entering the market maybe by the end of this decade with electric vehicles that are much cheaper than anything that can be produced by a European or an American manufacturer, and they're far ahead on software in comparison to those companies. So that's going to be the big rebalancing. It's like, how much market share are the Chinese companies with their large domestic market and large distribution going to take away from the incumbents?
1: On a- On a bit of a different note, as you're, as you're talking about all this, you know, the technical details, and I'm thinking about building this company again, what was it like for you through COVID, especially being, you know, car focused, like just hardware, software, how did you, how did you do that? You know, like remote work, in in person work, and, you know, enterprise sales background, tell me a little bit about that.
0: So we went a lot remote, but our hardware team and our operations team never went remote because you're working you're... on a physical car. It's like yeah. you can't put a car at everyone's house. Um, we were probably remote until like middle of 2021. And then we started bringing it back. This is probably earlier than a lot of other companies. And remote was pretty difficult. Like it was not nearly as productive because it's not just that you're working on cars and that you have a product. The, the thing that saved us is at the time we weren't doing a ton of driving because we were still developing a lot of foundational technology. But, the, but having people co-located is a huge accelerator for that. And so I, I think we slowed down a lot in 2020. Um, and I, I think a lot of companies did. They slowed down a lot. And it wasn't until we, we really brought back people back in, say, 2021 that we started accelerating again. And we went from a complex system that just was not stabilizing, like we ground on that for like six months, to what's, what's the simplest, most brute force thing you can do to make it work? And and so that's that's just happened over and over and over again, where you don't know, it's like, is this possible? Like, is this possible or not? You're doing something hard. Are we just like not smart enough? Like, is anyone able to do this? And, and you just have to back off. And... And just try something that's a lot more obvious, and then you can get
1: back into a learning cycle where you can figure out how to make it more complicated. Yeah, I I can see that. It makes sense. You mentioned earlier on in the conversation, going going back to just autonomy. You you mentioned that you're you're targeting, you know, the mass market and like these like freeways, expressways. Well, why is that? Like, is it? Do you think that? And you also mentioned that level five is sort of this utopian vision. Is it really, do you, do you see a future where we all are just, you know, entering these vehicles that move for us? No one's at, you know, um, at the driver's seat or no one's, you know, has their hand on the steering wheel. Is that not, is that not going to happen? So if you asked me a year ago, I would say definitely not. And the main reason why
0: definitely not is because sooner or later you have to communicate to a car what you want to do. And there, there are scenarios where it'll be easier to just directly control the car and try and explain to it or like click on something or like tell it where you want to go. It's like you go to a concert that's in a field and there's a person like waving a, a baton. Well, you're never going to teach a computer how to do that. So you're going to want to provide some sort of human instruction. What's, what's changed is that in the last year you have large language models that come out that have actually made it a lot more practical to map sort of verbal human intent into into motion and and so i think you can get there but it's not going to look exactly like how people see it right now so right now you get your robotaxi and like you enter a destination and it's this very sort of scripted experience and i don't think that that works for individually owned cars like you don't want to sit down in your car and then have to do a bunch of data entry before you get going you want to sit down you want to go and then As you move along, you'll progress through different levels of autonomy. So the way that we set it up is like, if ever you let go of the steering wheel, the car is driving and it doesn't have a very complex goal. Its goal is to like, keep following the road and keep following the highway, but it's okay. The idea is that you're not displaying intent to drive. So the car fills that in and, and you don't have to press a button and you don't have to set a speed. We just figure all that out
1: from the surrounding traffic. And, and as a driver... As a driver, like I'm used to using adaptive cruise control on the highway. you know it it you know gets closer to the car, gets further from the car, brakes for me, simple, I love it. How as a or as a driver, a consumer, how would this be different for me on the highway?
0: So for one thing, you wouldn't even turn it on. it's always on. So that's one of our philosophies is that your car is always smarter. You don't have to press a button to say, "Please be smart now." The other thing is that you don't set a speed we We know what the speed is. We actually uh, survey all of the surrounding traffic. So you, you know adaptive cruise control tends to be you go set speed until you approach another car and then you're locked into the car. What we did is we survey the traffic and we figure out the following distance and the speed and so the, the intention is that you can go through a wide variety of driving scenarios. Like I often it's like oh you have a fast car and then you're in stop and go and and there's traffic that's close. Uh, for us our, our goal is that you don't make any adjustment through all The car is figuring out how to adapt between those environments. So you're not changing the following distance. You're not changing the speed at all. And so we're we're getting people used to the idea that your car by default just does the right thing. It by default follows the road. It by default will keep a reasonable following distance. All you have to do is nothing. And, And so instead of the car just slowing down unless you press a button, it's going to keep driving along the road and sort of the simplest thing. And then what you do is you layer navigation on top of that. You say, I want to drive to this exit, or I want to, or maybe you actually enter a destination, at which point the car becomes more active in terms of changing lanes as well. And that's the goal by the end of this year is to do that navigation layer on the freeway.
1: How far are we, do you think, from having the first ghost-equipped vehicle on the streets? And not through your company, (laughs) obviously, through a manufacturer or consumer. Uh,
0: It's going to be the second half of this decade. So, after 2025, like maybe 2026, 2028. Um, so, that is the development cycle of cars. They want to make these decisions like two years before it, they actually ship. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, that's about the, the time range that we think is the target. And what you see right now is the auto manufacturers are locked into what they're doing at least through 2025. And then it's kind of open. And the conversations we we have with them say it's like okay we're on this level two path level two plus plus but we want something more but we don't know what that is yet mm-hmm. and and different companies have organized themselves in different ways to try and answer that question.
1: Are you finding that certain manufacturers, whether and like even splitting them up by like domestic, you know, uh, Asian, European, are you finding that certain manufacturers are more receptive to conversations about this than others? or is it just very, you know, just differs kind of brand by brand, not so much by, you know, where they're from in the world?
0: Um, it, it definitely matters where they're from in the world. So we're finding like the European manufacturers that do development in Silicon Valley are considerably more open than the ones that only do development in Germany. Uh, the American manufacturers, it, it's kind of the same thing where they're they're more open to the conversation. And what we found is that the better a product they've shipped, the more reality they've been exposed to about how hard the next step is going to be and the more open they are to a conversation.
1: Er, got it. So you're, so you're saying as they're experiencing that, they're realizing that they need help solving this. So
0: yeah, so you get this inverse behavior where the, the companies that haven't shipped any good features are usually harder to deal with because they haven't tried. Um, versus the company that shipped anything. It's like, and you're talking like Ford and GM and Mercedes, uh, who've done a lot of internal development, have a lot more experience with the problem. And so it's easier to have a productive conversation with them because they they know where you actually run into roadblocks. And we can go yeah. directly to that part.
1: Yeah, they they felt the pain points. They're looking for the doctor. <laughs> uh, I can't believe we missed this question, but why the name Ghost? i <laughs> would we, <how'd> we get <laughs> there? We got there. That's a simple one.
0: It's a simple one. Uh, so the inspiration is like the called the Japanese kami, which is like okay, what animates your car? We're not building a car; we're just making your car have intent and want to go somewhere. And that's the that's the
1: ghost in the car that that animates it. Nice, I love it. Well, John, very eye opening on the world of autonomy. I think before we wrap up, I, I just give me a bit of macro. What is the self driving? Even for the even if we're not self-driving, but what does the commute look like for the average person in like 2030? How is it different from today?
0: The first thing that it'll be a lot less stressful. Like everyone anyone who's done a long commute knows you get to the end of the commute and you're just tired from the commute. And so the first thing is like if you can just, you know, sit back and like let the car drive itself. One thing I've noticed with my using the product myself is that usually i drive like probably like the top five percent in terms of speed maybe the top one percent depending on who you're measuring and our car just goes slower because it's like kind of around the speed limit but a little faster and i find that i'm kind of okay with that like just because you know offloading to the to the car to do the driving just makes me feel a lot less stressed we, we've done a lot of long test trips like all the way from Uh, Recently, we did San Francisco to Las Vegas, and the stress has dropped off. And I think that one of the effects of that is going to be that people will be willing to commute a lot further than they would otherwise. Um, And so we'll see if, like, eventually autonomy kicks off a new frontier of development where you can develop even further from workplaces because the commute is low stress enough that people will be willing to just go further in order to have more space and you know, being a, a
1: community that they prefer compared to where their job is. And on the trip you just mentioned, SF to, to Vegas, how, how, what was that like? Like what percentage of the time did you have to, you know, put your hands on the wheel? How did that work?
0: It's almost never um, all, all along that trip. The longest stretch we did without any intervention, I think it was about 120 miles. And, and the reason for that intervention is when you cross the border into Nevada, Uh, We have to change our license plate to go from our California registration to our Nevada registration. But you can now do very, very long stretches without any intervention. This is going, there's tons of trucks around there. The the road itself is pretty flat, but at times it gets pretty patchy. Um, But the system is very consistent through that. And so we're spending a lot of time, not just on those long trips, but around Detroit where the highways are extremely variable um to to fix all those cases and they're under construction because it's summer. Make sure we handle all those cases. Our goal is that you just never intervene and it never asks you to intervene under any circumstance.
1: And and you know the car changing lanes on its own and everything.
0: Yeah. Yeah, change lanes. Right now you indicate you tell it to change lane, but it but it's checking the side and and checking the rear and the lane change occurs. And then the next step by the end of the year
1: is to make that completely automatic. Can this work in an environment where it's not perfect sunshine, cloudy, like, you know, there's a little rain, you know, something like that. Does that automatically kill it or what happens then?
0: No. Um, so cloudy is great. That's actually way easier than sunshine. Um, so, so rain is fine. The main issue was the windshield wipers. The rain itself didn't seem to cause much disturbance. On the, on the lane markers, we've tested rain until, you, like, you don't want to drive because the window is so heated with water. The, the interesting things we're running into are, are glare. So think of a tunnel exit where there's like one bright light and then, but the rest of the tunnel is dark. Um, in in Detroit, it's also dealing with salt spray is another issue uh, because salt spray just creates lots of gunk on, on your windshield and on the lens by extension. And so those are the next challenges is to solve those cases. But, you, you know, ordinary nighttime, light rain, um, you know, variable road conditions, uh, glare on the road. We spent a lot of time this year solving for for glare where even people I think can't see where the lane markers are. Um, our goal is to be superhuman in
1: all those respects. I love it. Yeah, you're gonna need little windshield wipers on the on the sensors <laughs> because I can tell yeah. you I'm driving sometimes and it's like, Oh, I don't have I lost my sensors. Rain is you know, crazy rain or yeah, maybe there's uh, some salt or whatever, something on it.
0: Yeah. So our, we, we have it easy. We just put it behind the windshield. So it's the same windshield wipers you hear. So same sensor. Uh, uh, okay, so it got goes. it. Nothing, nothing's outside the car. Nothing's on the roof. Uh, it's all inside the car. So if you can see, yeah. the system can see. That's
1: great. Sean Hayes. Uh, John, where, where can people learn more about you, Ghost? Where should people go if they want to learn more?
0: So our website is ghostautonomy.com.
1: Myself, I'm on Twitter at Ghost H A Y E S. John Hayes, thank you so much. Uh, this is a uh, very fascinating. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be paying close attention where this goes. So I wanna see, you know, I'm really curious to see how this um evolves and I'm rooting for you, man. I wanna I wanna see these on <laughs> every car in the street. So this is gonna be fun. All right, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Please give the podcast a rating, consider subscribing to the show, and check the show notes for links to what we talked about. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time.